Welcome to Compliance Beat, the podcast for compliance and ethics professionals. We provide practical insights and answer your questions about compliance and ethics. Together, we'll stay up to date on current trends so that your program stays effective. Brought to you by Moorhead Compliance Consulting. Here's your host, Eric Moorhead. This time, I wanted to talk about the relationship between culture and compliance, ethics and compliance. This uh, used to be a topic of conversation years ago when I first got into the space, maybe six, eight years ago. There used to be this talk about what's the difference? Is there a difference? How do they work together? I think that there's a strong recognition, certainly amongst those in the profession, that they're inexorably linked, that there is sometimes it's hard to tell the difference between one and the other. And there's some events that just happened this week that I think really ought to draw attention to that and are good teaching moments for the business units of our various organizations for them to understand how integral all of this is to what they're trying to do. United Airlines had a rough week, to say the least. At one time, their market capitalization was down over a billion dollars. They seem to have recovered somewhat from that. But then on Monday in the news, there was yet another example of a couple being apparently taken off an airplane by United Airlines. So the the hits sort of keep coming with regards to these PR issues. Uh, But to me, it's a much bigger issue of culture that really ought to be more of a focus here. Let's examine the, you know, which has been well examined over the last week, the incident on the airplane last week where the gentleman was dragged off the plane rather unceremoniously. For that to have happened, for that to have taken place, there had to be not just one person, but several people within United's organization, both there at the gate and on the plane itself, that had to either abdicate their authority or fail to question the actions that were going on. To me, that speaks to the culture of the organization in a way that ought to be of concern beyond just this individual incident. The key thing here, and the thing that I think makes this a, a valuable teaching moment, if you will, for our various organizations, is to point out that compliance and culture in particular aren't in a box that you take off a shelf. The compliance program and the work the hard work in providing and maintaining and growing an ethical culture can't be just used as a shield to occasionally fend off a pesky regulator that might come along and suggest that the organization is not doing something it should or needs to to make some in specific reforms. Culture and compliance is integral to the everyday operation of the program. This affects the bottom line. It affects the operation, the day-to-day operation, and it affects how the, opera, uh, how the organization conducts its business uh, every you know, moment that it's moving forward. Again, going to this example, how many failures, individual failures, had to happen before uh, this occurred? And then the failures kept happening. Uh, You had these mixed messages coming from the top of the organization, from the CEO, where he seemed to be tone deaf to the public opinion and then delivered a very different internal message than the message that he delivered externally. Let's just take those two messages as an example. When you have your chief executive that's literally giving two different stories, one public and one to the internal population, what does that tell the internal population about the, the message that's being sent externally, that it doesn't matter. 
that, you know, the messages that come from the CEO, depending on uh, who they're directed to and when they're directed and whether they're public or not, may or may not have the same import. How can you expect people to make decisions and take stands and perhaps go against the grain if they're in a culture where they see that those sorts of things aren't accepted or valued? The failures that had to happen for this incident to take place speak to the fact that United employees aren't comfortable doing what they need to do to, uh, to stand up and to, to make uh, changes where changes are necessary. Because I don't for a minute believe, and I don't think anybody else for a minute believes that, you know, everybody working for United and everybody working for United that was involved in that incident that was on that plane or at that gate or at Chicago's O'Hare, that they all uniformly were a bad character, that they all uniformly made, would have made that same decision. What it speaks to is that there is in that culture an inability for people to stand up and question and perhaps change direction in those circumstances. This was a stressful and unfortunate situation. But, you know, to use an example from earlier in the week that was the biggest airline story before this story, it's a story that I actually was caught up in on my way back from Prague. I landed in Atlanta a week before last on the Wednesday before last when severe weather eventually caused Delta Airlines to cancel 3,000 flights over a period of a couple of days. And it was a complete total shutdown of uh, traffic going out of that airport for several hours. Thousands, tens of thousands of people stranded or, or their plans delayed. Now, that is a difficult situation. And that's the second time in, I think, in just a little over a year that Delta has gone through that. Certainly a stressful situation. And I am sure that there were some Delta employees that perhaps were not as pleasant as they perhaps could have been in circumstances. But given the magnitude of what went on, I think when you compare it to to how um, United handled its situation, it's a night and day. And it's a cultural thing. I was, of course, not happy that I was delayed almost an entire day getting back to to my home. Uh, It took a couple of days for my luggage to show up. And I was, I'm sure, no different than many other people. But at every point along the way, I have to say, I have to be honest, whenever I dealt with a Delta employee, they had an attitude that was not disingenuous, that recognized that this was an extraordinary circumstance, but that they were going to do what they could do within their authority to try to make it better. And I'm sure, again, uh, not everybody had the same experience, but overall, I mean, you didn't see rioting in the Atlanta airport. And this was a much bigger disruption to service than what was going on in this airplane that caused the reaction that, that happened. So it's, it's a study in contrast in, in, in how important, I think, culture is taken within these two airlines. And again, not to say that Delta necessarily handled everything 100% correctly, but they ultimately didn't have the same blowback, I think, because they had a culture that was flexible enough to take on a pretty significant operational failure at least as on par with the uh, operational failure they had, I believe, last year, where another several thousand flights were canceled. I mean, I don't want to pile on poor United Airlines at this point. And again, understanding and recognizing that there are several people of goodwill that work for that organization. But uh, I would say that if there were 3,000 United flights that were canceled today, I don't know that they would have handled it with the aplomb that Delta ended up handling it. And I think a lot of it is culture. I don't think that they're necessarily better people working for Delta than United. I think that 
what you see from the top to the bottom with the messaging that happened in this last week from United is confusion. And that the focus on, on an ethical culture, on people being able to speak up and take initiative where they need to, was absent. And that really has to do with compliance. That has to do with culture. That has to do with ethics. It's all intertwined. Your compliance and ethics program, your culture, is not something you put on the shelf that's separate and apart from your operations. It has to be intertwined with your operations. If it's not intertwined with your operations, if it's not part and parcel of the DNA of, of your organization, then even small things, you know, one passenger on one plane can turn out to be a, a significant, significant issue. And, and again, it wasn't just that incident. It was everything that happened after that, all of the messaging that first day and a half from the executives. They were paralyzed, it seemed to be, and, and they didn't seem to understand what the right course of action was. And you had these differing views that were coming out. It was very extraordinary. And, and a study, again, a study in contrast between two airlines just here in the last week. But that, that, that was something that just struck me that I, I thought might be worth discussing because it's, I think, on the minds of everyone. Now, uh, you know, the question is, uh, is how do you fix a situation like that? How do you approach a culture where people are uncomfortable bucking a trend or speaking up or asking questions? It's a serious question, and I don't know that there's a, an easy answer on how you potentially work on or fix a culture such, cultural situation like that. I think one very clear example is you have to have messaging from the top of the organization, from the board of directors and the CEO and the other executives and the managers throughout the organization that's very strong about what the values of the organization are and what we're going to do and what we're not going to do and the fact that you need to be able to come forward and ask questions and speak up and have that sort of culture, that message about culture at least needs to be apparent and, and consistent. And again, I'm no expert on the internal culture of United, but the kind of peak inside the organization that we all had this week showed something that was very different from that. So I think there are some lessons to be learned here. And I think that it is a good object lesson when you're talking to particularly the business units of your organization about the importance and the necessity of compliance being embedded and culture being embedded in the organization and how that affects the bottom line. There are real business consequences to not having a positive ethical culture. The upshot this week is culture matters. Culture matters as a bottom line issue for your organization. And you need not look far past the headlines that we're all talking about to have examples to talk to your people about with regards to the importance of maintaining and growing an ethical culture. Hi, and welcome to a special interview with Laura Cordova. Laura recently left the Department of Justice where she was an assistant chief in the criminal fraud section. During her six years with the Department of Justice, she prosecuted a variety of healthcare fraud cases around the country. In 2015, Laura was appointed to create and lead the criminal fraud section's corporate healthcare fraud strike force, which focuses on large multi-jurisdictional fraud schemes throughout the healthcare industry. Prior to joining the Department of Justice, she was a litigator at large international firms, where she worked on a wide range of civil and criminal cases. She received her law degree from Georgetown and her master's of public health from Johns Hopkins University. She received her undergraduate degree in biochemistry back here in Texas at Texas A&M University, Gigham. And we're really pleased to have Laura with, her, with us here today. Welcome, Laura. Thanks, Eric. It's good to be here. One of the things that 
we've recently heard from both the Department of Justice and the Securities Exchange Commission and other regulators is when dealing with compliance programs, the expectation is that these programs be risk-based. When describing the expectations for compliance using that terminology, what in your mind does that mean for companies in a practical sense trying to have a risk-based program? I think most prosecutors see that in a pretty practical way. So I think what what prosecutors are going to be looking for is, is this company really addressing the risks that are known to their industry? So, for example, you have a medical device manufacturer. At this point in time, most people should know that kickbacks, kickbacks to physicians and other healthcare providers are a big risk in this kind of industry. So what kind of compliance program has the company created to address that specific risk in any industry? So if you're you know, an overseas oil services company, obviously a lot of those types of companies have been involved in FCPA violations um, over the years. So again, what kind of compliance program have they developed to address those specific risks that you know we've read about in the news where there have been press releases? I think a lot of prosecutors they're not compliance experts. So they're they're really just looking at it from a pretty practical perspective. The prosecutor says, you know, I've been prosecuting cases. I know about these three big pharma cases or three big medical device cases where, you know, the sales reps were paying kickbacks, speaker fees or, you know, something like that to the the physicians to get them to buy the product and use the product. I know about it. The company should know about it. The company's in this space. So what have they done? Have they done training? Have they created, um, you know, a backstop so that they're looking at the invoices submitted by the the sales reps? What you know, what is the company doing in a very practical way to address the risks that we all know about in their industry? Yeah, to to me, a lot of it is like you say, very practical and straightforward. Looking at what's going on in the industry, what cases obviously have been prosecuted here, and if you're international abroad, it also seems to me that you have to tell a story, whatever that story is, even if there was a a failure, you have to have a reasonable explanation as to why it's not the fault of the compliance uh, program of the organization. It seems to me, if you don't have a good, reasonable story, then then it's all bets are off. I think that's exactly right. I think the, the, you know, DOJ, SEC, they're looking at what kind of company is this and, and what have they done to try to do the right thing and make sure that if there is a bad actor in their midst, that that person can't take the whole company on a, you know, a a criminal ride. And so, you know, I think you're exactly right. And I I should say one of the reasons why we're um, recording this today is that you and I have discussed this topic recently live in Boston at an SCCE event. And we thought it was uh, such a good conversation and we had such a good, great reaction to it that we thought it made sense to try to replicate some of uh, this discussion for the podcast audience. But when we were planning this discussion, we had a lot to talk about. And then in the midst of planning, your former organization, the fraud section of the Department of Justice, issued a brand new document called the Evaluation of Corporate Compliance Programs. It's a rather, rather prosaic name, but it's a pretty, I wouldn't say explosive, but possibly revolutionary, at least evolutionary document for compliance professionals. What was your initial reaction when you saw the new memo that came out in February of 2017? My first reaction was really just glee. I was just so happy that it was published. It was something that had been talked about, that I had been, when I was at DOJ, people from law firms and um, industry were asking me about, when are we going to get it? When are we going to know? And so knowing how difficult it is to get something like this approved through the 
the bureaucratic process of the Department of Justice and get it out into the open where it's there for everybody to discuss and use, it's it's certainly a significant feat. And so I was happy to see that it had been accomplished. And I think I think it will be very useful going forward. Yeah, and there, there's a lot of content in there, and we don't have time today to discuss all that because we want to talk about some other topics. Maybe we'll do that in, in another podcast. Who knows? But the thing that I think is particularly interesting about it overall are there's some topics in there that perhaps compliance officers who were focused on the seven elements of an effective program that you find in the U.S. Sentencing Guidelines are, are a little unfamiliar with. And, and one of those is the very first item. That's uh, topic number one in the new memo, and that's uh, remediation. Remediation is obviously mentioned in the sentencing guideline context for getting credit for an effective program or resolution of case, but the sort of elevation of, of remediation, it's topic number one, and I don't think that's an accident in the new document, I think is important, particularly for organizations who perhaps haven't really thought about their plan for remediation when there's a compliance failure. And I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about the department's perspective on how quickly and thoroughly companies address failures and take remedial efforts and how important that is as a component of a compliance program. I think it's critically important. And and just so we're clear, you know, whatever I'm saying today are my own views and not those of the Department of Justice. Certainly. But my perspective on it is that, you know, as a prosecutor and talking to other prosecutors and, and dealing with these types of cases, um, I think this is a really important aspect of what the company's story, as you mentioned, because like I said before, we're, the prosecutors are typically trying to get a sense of what kind of company is this. And when trying to identify what kind of resolution is appropriate, whether there should be a monitor in place, which is obviously very expensive for the company, but what, you know, what kind of resolution is appropriate This is something that's really going to be important, I think, in the prosecutor's mind. What has the company done? Maybe there was a failing in the compliance program. Maybe, you know, something got through, something slipped through. What did the company do when it found out about it? And that's where the remediation comes in. And if a company has, like you said, a really good story to tell here about we identified the problem, we dealt with it, and this is how we dealt with it then I think that's going to go a long way in the Department of Justice's mind in terms of this being a company that can be trusted to proceed without having to um, you know, undergo the difficulties of a monitorship and potentially even a you know, guilty plea or something more, more substantial in terms of a re- resolution. You make a really good point about what makes effectiveness in, and that effectiveness doesn't necessarily mean that misconduct didn't happen. The guidelines, I think it's missed sometimes by compliance professionals that are trying to put together a program or, or, or considering what the effects of misconduct might be, that you can get credit even if there's been a violation of the law under the sentencing guideline standards if you have done all of these other steps, if you have, you know, had effective remediation, if you, you know, have the other aspects of a program, whether that's training, monitoring, efficient resources, you know, all of these aspects. And I see nothing in this new memo that turns away from that direction of, you know, you can be, as long as you work in good faith and have a risk-based program and have, have gone through the steps and are attempting to improve that program, there's nothing in this memo and nothing, certainly nothing in the sentencing guidelines that would deny you credit and perhaps a successful resolution of the issue, uh, even if something bad has happened and it's undeniable it's happened. That's absolutely right. And you know, one thing 
that I saw when I was at the fraud section at DOJ is that the the attitude there really is to be practical about the challenges that companies face and understanding that no compliance program will ever be perfect. And while I don't know any prosecutors who are compliance experts, the fraud section did hire a compliance expert, Wei Chen, and she's involved in cases really sometimes even from the beginning. But helping the prosecutors make these sorts of determinations, is this a reasonable compliance program to begin with? Was the remediation appropriate? Was this the right sort of thing for a company to do? Because I think sometimes prosecutors not being experts in this field can think, oh, well, I don't want to be too you know, timid here and I'm going to you know, make sure the company does everything 100% and they have to go all the way. Or on the other hand, a prosecutor could say, well, I'm no expert, so you know, they're telling me it's not, you know, this is appropriate. So I guess, you know, they, they know more about this than I do. So I'm going to kind of take their word for it. <laughs> and so to avoid either of those extremes, Wei Chen has been involved and, and she has a lot of experience in compliance and has been really instrumental, I think, in helping educating prosecutors on the one hand and also helping them understand the specific cases that they're dealing with. No, I think that that's a good point because this memo is not uh, intended only for fraud section and for fraud fraud section prosecutions, but it's in, it's it can be a a model that's used by uh, assistant U.S. attorneys throughout the United States to take a look and evaluating a case and and resolving a case. I think you're right. You know, you you can avoid perhaps the 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 extremes. You know, for those organizations that maybe had the timid prosecutor, this might not be <laughs> this might not be a preference compared to the prosecutors. Like, oh, whatever you say, that sounds good to me. Uh, but I would say my experience on the other side of the offense as a as a, uh, a defense attorney, I didn't run into too many of those timid prosecutors. <laughs> but but I'm sure they exist. But no, I think that you know it's always good to introduce uh, introduce a, a level of consistency. Consistency or attempt to hone consistency across across the United States. I mean, as a, somebody who came from the U.S. Sentencing Commission, I mean, the Commission's whole goal is primarily to to ensure consistency in in application. So, I think that that potentially could be a, a really strong benefit of this. But that means that compliance officers need to be educated and schooled in in the categories and the in the information that's in this. Um, uh, memo so that they know what applies and what doesn't, because I think they could be, very easily be caught flat-footed by an assistant U.S. attorney or a prosecutor with all of the other resources that the fraud section has in place if they if they aren't prepared to answer those questions. Another big development, I, I as I said, I think we could we could talk for an hour just on on the memo and and uh, but I, I want to uh, there's a couple other areas that I really want to get your opinion on, and one of those areas is. The release of the of another memo, the Yates memo, which is still a strong, strong topic of conversation amongst within the com- compliance community. There was just a great article in the National Law Review, I think, this week about VW and and the compliance officer in that case. And and although Yates is not often specifically mentioned in that context, I think a lot of people particularly compliance officers, are thinking about Yates and personal liability a lot these days. You were obviously still at the department when Yates was released. I'm curious as to how Yates perhaps changed your perspective or maybe didn't change your perspective about handling organizational cases and charging individuals. Uh, curious about your your perspective as a line pr- prosecutor at the time on Yates' impact and, and the message. Yates didn't really change the policy regarding pursuing individuals, in my view. I think it articulated the policy. I didn't know a prosecutor at the Department of Justice who ever would have said, 
oh, I don't want to go after individuals. I just want to go after the company. So it wasn't as though there was a significant policy change in that regard. I think Yates may have changed the policy or, or did change the policy with respect to how civil cases proceed against individuals. If an individual cannot pay, then the ACE memo says we still pursue them civilly. Um, and that was not the policy before. So it, it did change the policy in some regards, but I was a criminal prosecutor at the time. And I don't think it changed the policy with respect to you know, the basic idea that we're going to go after individuals. You know, I like to say that the Yates memo changed, well, articulated the policy, but it didn't change the law. Uh Uh Um, The law is still the same with respect to proving a criminal case against an individual, and that means you have to prove all the elements. You have to prove knowledge and you have to prove intent. And that's still as difficult today as it was then, especially in these large organizations where the conduct, you know, you may have pieces of the conduct occurring. Different people had different roles and actually marshalling evidence sufficient to charge and convict one of those individuals may be very difficult. The other thing is, um, you know, it's sometimes difficult if you're, you may have evidence against an individual, but it may be a rather low level employee and you may not have the evidence to go against somebody more senior. And so there are very robust discussions about, is this an appropriate use of resources? Is this justice to go after somebody who, you know, didn't benefit, just did what their boss told them, but they knew it was a crime and they did it anyway. So they committed a crime. But those are discussions that were always going on before Yates and continued after Yates. I do think that the focus perhaps on individuals increased after the Yates memo. So, and I mean that not in the line prosecutor way, but in terms of if a prosecutor has a case with a company and they're seeking to resolve it, even before Yates, there would be questions, well, what about the individuals? Who's being charged? Who's not being charged? Why? But I think after Yates, maybe that just ratcheted up a little bit more, just a little, a little bit more focus, maybe a little bit more pressure. I don't know if that's the appropriate word to use in this case, but certainly a little bit more focus on it. Well, I said when it came out, and I still believe, I think the biggest impact of Yates is that we are, we talk about Yates now. And I yes. think that that's a, a good thing, both for external purposes, for the department to sort of deliver deliver the message to the community, but also for internal purposes, for compliance officers and counsel to be able to say to particularly senior managers and managers that are in a position of authority within the organization to kind of guide the discussion around compliance to say, look, you know, this is this is what's going on. This is the the expectation. The other thing that I thought was really interesting at our event in Boston, I threw out a little bit of data because I I am now an unabashed data nerd since I had my stint at the Sentencing Commission a few years ago. They converted me to data. And one of the pieces of data that I that I we threw into the mix when we were talking about Yates is that if you look at Sentencing Commission data for parallel proceedings, uh, criminal proceedings for individuals that are linked to organizational resolutions, almost 60% in the last couple of years, 58% actually in both years, there was at least one individual who was charged. And my perspective on that based on my experience over the last few years was that seems pretty, that seems pretty reasonable to me. I mean, 60% is seemed good and seemed, and it seemed high to me, but then we had an audience member was like, boy, that's terrible. <laughs> I don't know if you remember, remember that guy was like, <laughs> yes. And I think he had a good point, which was that, well, crimes were committed and in 40% of the cases, nobody got charged, um, yep. which is a fair point. But I also think that in these types of cases, for the reasons I already articulated, you know, it's it's very difficult sometimes to proceed against an individual and not appropriate. I mean, if you don't have the evidence, you shouldn't proceed against an individual. Yeah. 
Yeah. Well, I mean, that's the thing is, you know, and that's the explanation that's happened over the years. I mean, if you go back to 2008, there, you know, it was a human cry in the, in the aftermath about why don't we see bankers in chains? And I think the most appropriate answer to that is, well, number one is you first, you have to identify a violation of federal law, which wasn't entirely clear in a lot of these cases There it might've been some violation of their, of their fiduciary duty to their companies and, and, and their clients, but it's more of a civil violation, if anything. But you have to identify a crime, which wasn't all that straightforward in some of those cases. And then you have to meet this high burden, you know, that most, you know, most Americans are familiar with, you know, beyond a reasonable doubt as the standard of proof in, in criminal cases. But unless they've sat on a jury and had to go through the painful process of, of jury instruction on, uh, on, on this and, and try to figure it out for themselves, I, it's, it's sometimes hard to realize what a, what a high burden it really is. Right. I think that's exactly right. The, the willfulness component can be very difficult, showing that somebody intended to do something that was against the law. Um, yeah. They may say, well, I was just trying to, you know, make a little extra money, but I didn't actually mean to break the law. Yeah. So. Well, there's a there's an old, older attorney in Houston that used to say, it's not a crime to be stupid. <laughs> and I think, that's, <laughs> I think that holds true in a lot of things. And um, I, I think that's a good thing. <laughs> yes. We're all grateful for that. Um, <laughs> The, the the other piece of Yates that I think is, uh, again, I think of particular importance to those of us in, that deal in compliance and certainly a lot of the people in the audience that are compliance officers or have a compliance role is, does Yates potentially raise the stakes for compliance officers? I already mentioned the VW case where an uh, individual who's been variously described as the compliance officer, and I and if, if the facts in the uh, released information in the and the agent's affidavit, for example, are true, it looks like there was active participation in, in an attempted fraud by this individual, which may meet that heavy burden we were just talking about. But what I'm curious, from your perspective, do you think uh, compliance officers are potentially facing more personal risk for either failing to do their job or, or t- turning a blind eye? Do you think that, uh, for instance, if uh, a, a compliance officer has the sense that something's going on, and they fail to go to the board or fail to make a noisy exit from the organization when there are potential violations out there, are they on the line potentially? They are, potentially. And I don't think that changes with Yates. I think that the, you know, there's some deliberate ignorance or, like you said, turning a blind eye when they know something wrong is is going on in the company, then there is potential civil liability and, and potentially criminal liability, although I think that could be a very, very difficult case for a prosecutor to make, depending on the facts, obviously. But yeah. I think that the the increased risk here is just what you mentioned, which is that we're talking about it. And it's people in DOJ are talking about it. And they're, you know, saying, well, who, you know, who in this organization knew about what was going on? Might be the compliance officer. Okay. And then, you know, that's who we need to go after individually. So I think that there are you know, I don't know that we've seen it, but I, I could imagine, given the way the, you know, the sort of, like I said, the increased focus on it, that cases that were closer to the line, mm-hmm. somebody might um, be pursued civilly or criminally, whereas in the past they might not have. You know, the government still has to meet their burden, whether it's civil or criminal. So I don't think it, you know, like I said, it didn't change the law, but I do think that prosecutors might be incentivized to, you know, pursue cases a bit more aggressively when it's when it's closer to the line. Yeah, and, I, I, and to me, sort of the summation of both Yates and the newest uh, guidance from Fraud Section is that you're on notice, and and that if you, 
as a compliance officer or the person responsible for compliance internally at your organization have an issue and it doesn't get raised or, or, or you have noticed that there's potential problems out there and you're not taking a risk-based approach to review your program and allocate resources, when something happens and it's time to tell that story we're talking about and your mm-hmm. story doesn't meet these standards, it's going to be really hard to say, well, I just didn't know about it. I think that it's going to be that's not going to be a good story to tell uh, because I think the expectation is everybody's on notice at this point. I think you're exactly right. Well, Laura, I can't thank you enough for giving us a few minutes of your time today to talk through some of these really uh, sort of hot off the press uh, issues with regards to the department and other agencies perspective on compliance. It's been a real pleasure. Likewise. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to Compliance Beat. Check out our website, compliancebeat.com. This podcast is brought to you by Moorhead Compliance Consulting. Be sure to check us out at moorheadconsulting.com. 